0: chapter 31 part 2 of 2 years before the mast this librivox recording is in the public domain 2 years before the mast by richard henry dana junior chapter 31 part 2 bad prospects monday july 4th this was independence day in boston what a firing of guns and ringing of bells and rejoicings of all sorts in every part of our country The ladies, who have not gone down to Nahant, for a breath of cool air and sight of the ocean, walking the streets with parasols over their heads, and the dandies in their white pantaloons and silk stockings, what quantities of ice-cream have been eaten, and how many loads of ice brought into the city from a distance, and sold out by the lump and by the pound? the smallest of the islands which we saw today would have made the fortune of poor jack if he had had it in boston and i dare say he would have had no objection to being there with it this to be sure was no place to keep the fourth of july to keep ourselves warm and the ship out of the ice was as much as we could do yet no one forgot the day and many were the wishes and conjectures and comparisons both serious and ludicrous which were made among all hands. The sun shone bright as long as it was up, only that a scud of black clouds was ever and anon driving across it. At noon we were in latitude 54 degrees, 27 minutes south, and longitude 85 degrees, 5 minutes west, having made a good deal of easting, but having lost in our latitude by the heading off the wind. Between daylight and dark, that is, between nine o'clock and three, we saw thirty-four ice islands of various sizes, some no bigger than the hull of our vessel, and others apparently nearly as large as the one we first saw, though as we went on the islands became smaller and more numerous, and at sundown of this day a man at the masthead saw large tracts of floating ice, called field-ice, at the southeast this kind of ice is much more dangerous than the large islands for those can be seen at a distance and kept away from but the field ice floating in great quantities and covering the ocean for miles and miles in pieces of every size large flat and broken cakes with here and there an island rising twenty and thirty feet as large as the ship's hull this it is very difficult to steer clear of A constant lookout was necessary, for many of these pieces coming with the heave of the sea were large enough to have knocked a hole in the ship, and that would have been the end of us, for no boat, even if we could have gone out, could have lived in such a sea, and no man could have lived in a boat in such weather. To make our condition still worse, the wind came out due east, just after sundown, and it blew a gale dead ahead with hail and sleet, and a thick fog, so that we could not see half the length of the ship. Our chief reliance, the prevailing westerly gales, was thus cut off, and here we were, nearly seven hundred miles to the westward of the Cape, with a gale dead from the eastward, and the weather so thick that we could not see the ice with which we were surrounded, until it was directly under our bows. At four p.m., it was then quite dark. All hands were called and sent aloft in a violent squall of hail and rain to take in sail. We had now got all our cape horn rig, thick boots, southwesters coming down over our necks and ears, thick trousers and jackets, and some with oil cloth suits over all. Mittens, too, we wore on deck, but it would not do for us to go aloft with them, as being wet and stiff they might let a man slip overboard, for all the hold he could get upon a rope. So we were obliged to work with bare hands, which, as well as our faces, were often cut with the hailstones, which fell thick and large. Our ship was now all cased with ice, hull, spars, and standing rigging, and the running rigging so stiff that we could hardly bend it so as to belay it, or, still less, take a knot with it, and the sails frozen, one at a time, for it was a long piece of work and required many hands. We furled the courses, mizzen topsail, and fore topsail staysail, and close reefed the fore and main topsails, and hove the ship to under the fore, while the main hauled up by the clew lines and buttlands, and ready to be sheeted home if we found it necessary to make sail to get to windward of an ice island. A regular lookout was then set and kept by each watch in turn, until the morning. It was a tedious and anxious night. It blew hard the whole time, and there was an almost constant driving of either rain, hail, or snow. In addition to this it was as thick as muck, and the ice was all about us. The captain was on deck nearly the whole night, and kept the cook in the galley with a roaring fire to make coffee for him, which he took every few hours, and once or twice gave a little to his officers, but not a drop of anything was there for the crew. The captain, who sleeps all the daytime and comes and goes at night as he chooses, can have his brandy and water in the cabin, and his hot coffee at the galley, while Jack, who has to stand through everything... And work in wet and cold can have nothing to wet his lips or warm his stomach. This was a temperance ship by her articles, and like too many such ships, the temperance was all in the forecastle. The sailor who only takes his one glass as it is dealt out to him is in danger of being drunk, while the captain, upon whose self-possession and cool judgment the lives of all depend, may be trusted with any amount to drink at his will. Sailors will never be convinced that rum is a dangerous thing by taking it away from them and giving it to the officers, nor can they see a friend in that temperance which takes from them that which they have always had, and gives them nothing in the place of it. By seeing it allowed to their officers they will not be convinced it is taken from them for their good, and by receiving nothing in its place they will not believe that it is done in kindness." "'On the contrary, many of them look upon the change as a new instrument of tyranny. "'Not that they prefer rum. "'I never knew a sailor who had been a month away from the grog-shops "'who would not prefer a pot of hot coffee or chocolate in a cold night to all the rum afloat. "'They all say that rum only warms them for a time. "'Yet if they can get nothing better, they will miss what they have lost.' The momentary warmth and glow from drinking it, the break and change which it makes in a long, dreary watch by the mere calling all hands aft and serving of it out, and simply having some event to look forward to and to talk about, all give it an importance and a use which no one can appreciate who has not stood his watch before the mast. On my passage out the pilgrim was not under temperance articles, and Grog was served out every middle and morning watch, and after every reefing of topsails. And though I had never drunk rum before, nor desired to again, I took my allowance then at the capstan, as the rest did, merely for the momentary warmth it gave to the system, and the change in our feelings and aspect of our duties on the watch. At the same time, as I have said, there was not a man on board who would not have pitched the rum to the dogs. I have heard them say so a dozen times for a pot of coffee or chocolate or for even our common beverage water bewitched and tea begrudged as it was note the proportion of the ingredients of the tea that was made for us and ours as i have before stated was a favourable specimen of american merchantmen were a pint of tea and a pint and a half of molasses to about three gallons of water these are all boiled down together in the coppers, and, before serving it out, the mess is stirred up with a stick, so as to give each man his fair share of sweetening and tea-leaves. The tea for the cabin is, of course, made in the usual way, in a teapot and drunk with sugar. End note. The temperance reform is the best thing that ever was undertaken for the sailor, but when the grog is taken from him, he ought to have something in its place. As it is now in most vessels, it is a mere saving to the owners, and this accounts for the sudden increase of temperance ships, which surprised even the best friends of the cause. If every merchant, when he struck grog from the list of expenses of his ship, had been obliged to substitute as much coffee or chocolate as would give each man a potful when he came off the topsail yard on a stormy night, I fear Jack might have gone to ruin on the old road. Note i do not wish these remarks so far as they relate to the saving of expense in the outfit to be applied to the owners of our ship for she was supplied with an abundance of stores of the best kind that are given to seamen though the dispensing of them is necessarily left to the captain and i learned on our return that the captain withheld many of the stores from us from mere ugliness he brought several barrels of flour home but would not give us the usual twice-a-week death and so as to other stores indeed so high was the reputation of the employ among men and officers for the character and outfit of their vessels and for their liberality in conducting their voyages that when it was known that they had the alert fitting out for a long voyage and the hands were to be shipped at a certain time a half hour before the time as one of the crew told me sailors were steering down the wharf hopping over the barrels like a drove of sheep End note. But this is not doubling Cape Horn. Eight hours of our night watch was on deck, and during the whole of that time we kept a bright lookout, one man on each bow, another in the bunt of the foreyard, the third mate on the scuttle, one man on each quarter, and another always standing by the wheel. The chief mate was everywhere, and commanded the ship when the captain was below. When a large piece of ice was seen in our way, or drifting near us, the word was passed along, and the ship's head turned one way or another, and sometimes the yard squared or braced up. There was little else to do than to look out, and we had the sharpest eyes in the ship on the forecastle. The only variety was the monotonous voice of the lookout forward: "'Another island! Ice ahead! Ice on the lee bow! Hard up the helm! Keep her off a little!' Steady. in the meantime the wet and cold had brought my face into such a state that i could neither eat nor sleep and though i stood it out all night yet when it became light i was in such a state that all hands told me i must go below and lie by for a day or two or i should be laid up for a long time when the watch was changed i went into the steerage and took off my hat and comforter and showed my face to the mate who told me to go below at once, and stay in my berth until the swelling went down, and gave the cook orders to make a poultice for me, and said he would speak to the captain. I went below and turned in, covering myself over with blankets and jackets, and lay in my berth nearly twenty-four hours, half asleep and half awake, stupid from the dull pain. I heard the watch called, and the men going up and down, and sometimes a noise on deck and a cry of ice but I gave little attention to anything. At the end of twenty-four hours the pain went down, and I had a long sleep, which brought me back into my proper state, yet my face was so swollen and tender that I was obliged to keep my berth for two or three days longer. During the two days I had been below, the weather was much the same that it had been. Headwinds and snow and rain, or, if the wind came fair, too foggy, And the ice too thick to run. At the end of the third day, the ice was very thick. A complete fog bank covered the ship. It blew a tremendous gale from eastward, with sleet and snow, and there was every promise of a dangerous and fatiguing night. At dark, the captain called all hands aft and told them that not a man was to leave the deck that night, that the ship was in the greatest danger any cake of ice might knock a hole in her, or she might run on an island and go to pieces. No one could tell whether she would be a ship the next morning. The lookouts were then set, and every man was put in his station. When I heard what was the state of things, I began to put on my clothes to stand out with the rest of them, when the mate came below, and, looking at my face, ordered me back to my berth, saying that if we went down we should all go down together, but if I went on deck I might lay myself up for life." This was the first word I had heard from aft, for the captain had done nothing, nor inquired how I was, since I went below. In obedience to the mate's orders I went back to my berth, but a more miserable night I never wished to spend. I never felt the curse of sickness so keenly in my life. If I could only have been on deck with the rest where something was to be done and seen and heard, where there were fellow beings for companions in duty and danger, but to be cooped up alone in a black hole in equal danger but without power to do, was the hardest trial. Several times in the course of the night I got up determined to go on deck, but the silence which showed that there was nothing doing, and the knowledge that I might make myself seriously ill, for no purpose, kept me back. It was not easy to sleep lying as I did, with my head directly against the bows, which might be dashed in by an island of ice, brought down by the very next sea that struck her. This was the only time I had been ill since I left Boston, and it was the worst time that could have happened. I felt almost willing to bear the plagues of Egypt for the rest of the voyage, if I could but be well and strong for that one night. Yet it was a dreadful night for those on deck. A watch of eighteen hours with wet and cold and constant anxiety nearly wore them out, and when they came below at nine o'clock for breakfast, they almost dropped asleep on their chests, and some of them were so stiff that they could with difficulty sit down. Not a drop of anything had been given to them during the whole time, though the captain, as on the night that I was on deck, had his coffee every four hours except that the mate stole a potful of coffee for two men to drink behind the galley, while he kept a lookout for the captain. Every man had his station and was not allowed to leave it, and nothing happened to break the monotony of the night, except once setting the main topsail, to run clear of a large island to leeward, which they were drifting fast upon. Some of the boys got so sleepy and stupefied that they actually fell asleep at their posts, and the young third mate, Mr. Hatch, whose post was the exposed one of standing the fore scuttle, was so stiff, when he was relieved, that he could not bend his knees to get down. By a constant lookout and a quick shifting of the helm, as the islands and pieces came in sight, the ship went clear of everything but a few small pieces, though daylight showed the ocean covered for miles. At daybreak it fell a dead calm, and with the sun the fog cleared a little, and a breeze sprung up from the westward, which soon grew into a gale. We had now a fair wind, daylight, and comparatively clear weather, yet, to the surprise of every one, the ship continued hove-to. "'Why does not he run? What is the captain about?' was asked by every one and from questions it soon grew into complaints and murmurings. When the daylight was so short, it was too bad to lose it, and a fair wind, too, which everyone had been praying for. As hour followed hour, and the captain showed no sign of making sail, the crew became impatient, and there was a good deal of talking and consultation together on the forecastle. They had been beaten out with the exposure and hardship, and impatient to get out of it, and this unaccountable delay was more than they could bear in quietness, in their excited and restless state. Some said the captain was frightened, completely cowed by the dangers and difficulties that surrounded us, and was afraid to make sail, while others said that in his anxiety and suspense he had made a free use of brandy and opium, and was unfit for his duty. The carpenter, who was an intelligent man, and a thorough seaman, and had great influence with the crew, came down into the forecastle and tried to induce them to go aft and ask the captain why he did not run, or request him in the name of all hands to make sail. This appeared to be a very reasonable request, and the crew agreed that if he did not make sail before noon they would go aft. Noon came, and no sail was made, A consultation was held again, and it was proposed to take the ship from the captain and give command of her to the mate, who had been heard to say that if he could have his way the ship would have been half the distance to the cape before night, ice or no ice. And so irritated and impatient had the crew become that even this proposition, which was open mutiny, was entertained, and the carpenter went to his berth leaving it tacitly understood that something serious would be done if things remained as they were many hours longer. When the carpenter left we talked it all over, and I gave my advice strongly against it. Another of the men, too, who had known something of the kind of attempt in another ship by a crew who were dissatisfied with their captain, and which was followed with serious consequences, was opposed to it. Stimson, who soon came down, joined us, and we determined to have nothing to do with it. By these means the crew were soon induced to give it up for the present, though they said they would not lie where they were much longer without knowing the reason. The affair remained in this state until four o'clock, when an order came forward for all hands to come aft upon the quarter-deck. In about ten minutes they came forward again, and the whole affair had been blown. The carpenter, prematurely and without any authority from the crew, had sounded the mate as to whether he would take command of the ship and intimated an intention to displace the captain. And the mate, as in duty bound, had told the whole to the captain, who immediately sent for all hands aft. Instead of violent measures, or at least an outbreak of quarter-deck bravado, threats, and abuse, which they had every reason to expect, a sense of common danger and common suffering seemed to have tamed his spirit, and begotten in him something like a humane fellow feeling for he received the crew in a manner quiet, and even almost kind. He told them what he had heard, and said that he did not believe that they would try to do any such thing as was intimated, that they had always been good men, obedient, and knew their duty, and he had no fault to find with them, and asked them what they had to complain of, said that no one could say that he was slow to carry sail, which was true enough, and that as soon as he thought it was safe and proper he should make sail. He added a few words about their duty in their present situation, and sent them forward, saying that he should take no further notice of the matter, but at the same time told the carpenter to recollect whose power he was in, and that if he heard another word from him he would have cause to remember him to the day of his death. This language of the captain had a very good effect upon the crew, and they returned quietly to their duty. For two days more the wind blew from the southern and eastward, and in the short intervals, when it was fair, the ice was too thick to run. Yet the weather was not so dreadfully bad, and the crew had watch and watch. I still remained in my berth, fast recovering, yet not well enough to go safely on deck, and I should have been perfectly useless, for, from having eaten nothing for nearly a week except a little rice, which I forced into my mouth the last day or two. I was as weak as an infant. To be sick in a forecastle is miserable indeed. It is the worst part of a dog's life, especially in bad weather. The forecastle shut up tight to keep out the weather and cold air, the watch either on deck or asleep in their berths, no one to speak to, the pale light of the single lamp, swinging to and fro from the beam, so dim that one can scarcely see, much less read by it—the water dropping from the beams and carlings and running down into the sides, and the forecastle so wet and dark and cheerless, and so lumbered up with chests and wet clothes, that sitting up is worse than lying in the berth. These are some of the evils. Fortunately, I needed no help from anyone, and no medicine, and if i had needed help i don't know where i should have found it sailors are willing enough but it is true as is often said no one ships for a nurse on board a vessel our merchant ships are always under and if one man is lost by sickness they cannot spare another to take care of him a sailor is always presumed to be well and if he's sick he's a poor dog one has to stand his will and another his lookout and the sooner he gets on deck again the better. Accordingly, as soon as I could possibly go back to my duty, I put on my thick clothes and boots and saw Wester, and made my appearance on deck. I had been but a few days below, yet everything looked strangely enough. The ship was cased in ice, decks, sides, masts, yards, and rigging. Two close-reefed topsails were all the sail she had on, and every sail and rope was frozen so stiff in its place that it seemed as though it would be impossible to start anything. Reduced, too, to her topmast, she had altogether a most forlorn and crippled appearance. The sun had come up brightly. The snow was swept off the decks and ashes thrown upon them so that we could walk, for they had been as slippery as glass. It was, of course, too cold to carry on any ship's work, and we had only to walk the deck and keep ourselves warm. The wind was still ahead, and the whole ocean to the eastward, covered with islands and field-ice. At four bells the order was given to square away the yards, and the man who came from the helm said that the captain had kept her off to north-north-east. What could this mean? The wildest rumours got adrift. Some said that he was going to put into Valparaiso in winter, and others that he was going to run out of the ice and cross the Pacific and go home round the Cape of Good Hope. Soon, however, it leaked out, and we found that we were running for the Straits of Magellan. The news soon spread through the ship, and all tongues were at work talking about it. No one on board had been through the Straits, but I had in my chest an account of the passage of the ship A.J. Donaldson of New York through those Straits a few years before the account was given by the captain and the representation was as favourable as possible it was soon read by everyone on board and various opinions pronounced the determination of our captain had at least this good effect it gave us something to think and talk about made a break in our life and diverted our minds from the monotonous dreariness of the prospect before us having made a fair wind of it we were going off at a good rate and leaving the thickest of the ice behind us this, at least, was something. Having been long enough below to get my hands well warmed and softened, the first handling of the ropes was rather tough, but a few days hardened them, and as soon as I got my mouth open wide enough to take in a piece of salt beef and hard bread, I was all right again. Sunday, July 10th, latitude 54 degrees, 10 minutes, longitude 79 degrees, 7 minutes. This was our position at noon. The sun was out bright, the ice was all left behind, and things had quite a cheering appearance. We brought our wet pea-jackets and trousers on deck, and hung them up in the rigging, that the breeze and the few hours of sun might dry them a little. And, by leave of the cook, the galley was nearly filled with stockings and mittens, hung round to be dried. Boots, too, were brought up, and having got a little tar and slush from below, we gave them thick coats. After dinner all hands were turned to, to get the anchors over the bows, bend on the chains, etc. The fish tackle was got up, fish davit rigged out, and, after two or three hours of hard and cold work, both anchors were ready for instant use. A couple of kedges got up, a hawser coiled away upon the fore hatch, and the deep-sea lead line overhauled and made ready. Our spirits returned with having something to do, and when the tackle was manned to bows the anchor home, notwithstanding the desolation of the scene, we struck up cheerily men in full chorus. This pleased the mate, who rubbed his hands and cried out, That's right, my boys. Never say die. That sounds like the old crew. And the captain came up on hearing the song and said to the passenger, within hearing of the man at the wheel, "'That sounds like a lively crew. "'They'll have their song so long as there's enough left for a chorus.' "'This preparation of the cable and anchors was for the passage of the straits, "'for as they were not very crooked, and with a variety of currents, "'it is necessary to come frequently to anchor. "'This was not by any means a pleasant prospect. "'Of all the work that a sailor is called upon to do in cold weather, "'there is none so bad as working the ground-tackle.' the heavy chain-cables to be hauled and pulled about the decks with bare hands, wet hawsers, slip-ropes, and buoy-ropes to be hauled aboard, dripping in water, which is running up your sleeves and freezing, clearing haws under the bows, getting under way, and coming to at all hours of the night and day, and a constant lookout for rocks and sands and turns up tides. These are some of the disagreeables of such a navigation to a common sailor. Fair or foul, he wants to have nothing to do with the ground-tackle between port and port. One of our hands, too, had unluckily fallen upon a half of an old newspaper which contained an account of the passage through the straits of a Boston brig, called, I think, the Peruvian, in which she lost every cable and anchor she had, got aground twice, and arrived at Valparaiso in distress. This was set off against the account of the A.J. Donaldson, and led us to look forward with less confidence to the passage especially as no one on board had ever been through and we heard the captain had no very satisfactory charts however we were spared any further experience on the point for the next day when we must have been near the cape of pillars which is the south-west point of the mouth of the straits a gale set in from the eastward with a heavy fog so that we could not see half the ship's length ahead This, of course, put an end to the project for the present, for a thick fog and a gale blowing dead ahead are not the most favorable circumstances for the passage of difficult and dangerous straits. This weather, too, seemed likely to last for some time, and we could not think of beating about the mouth of the straits for a week or two, waiting for a favorable opportunity. So we braced up on the larboard tack, put the ship's head due south, and stuck her off for Cape Horn again. End of chapter 31, part 2